95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the sheep, the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. I want to begin this morning with a a series of of questions. Uh, I have wondered, if you have wondered, why do we have a call to worship? What is the function of a call to worship in a worship service? What does it mean? Why is it part of our service? Why is it something that we do? Maybe alongside that you have wondered... Why do we sing the psalms? Why do we sing the psalms as our call to worship? Well, today my hope is to answer those questions for you. So you could say that in one sense, the sermon this morning is uh, kind of uh, in the category of liturgical instruction. By that, I mean that part of my objective here today is to give you the biblical rationale for why we do what we do in worship. I want to be able to answer for you, one, why we have a call to worship as an element of our worship service, and two, why we sing the psalms for that call to worship. But let me tell you this, that objective and that purpose is infinitely less important than my main objective in this sermon, which is to show you that every week when we sing the call to worship, we're not simply carrying out a liturgical tradition that was passed down to us through the ages of the church. But I want to show you, I want to demonstrate that our calls to worship are in themselves, both in substance and in function, a loud and joyous proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every week when we come together to worship, we are proclaiming from the very beginning of our service the gospel of Christ and it's probably one of my favorite things in all preaching and, and teaching. One of my favorite things is to be able to accurately and faithfully show how the scriptures of the Old Testament proclaim Christ. And for that matter, how the whole word proclaims Christ. But the more that I study this word, the more I meditate on it, and the more I progress in my seminary studies even, the more I am reminded of this fact, that Christ is the very word of God. One of my professors at RTS, Miles Van Pelt, he's he's put it this way, and I think it's worth sharing with you all. He said this, Jesus is the sum and the substance of the whole biblical message. Jesus is the summary and the full substance of the Bible. He is God's gospel and the theological center of the whole Bible. And so again, let me begin today by saying that my hope is, yes, that you'll walk away today with a better understanding 
of why we do what we do in worship, why we have a call to worship, why we sing the psalms. But more than that, I hope that altogether we'll walk out of here with a better sense of how and why our worship is meant and designed to magnify and to exalt and to proclaim every week the gospel of Christ. So that is where we're headed. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your great word. We thank you, Lord, that it calls out to us and draws us in. Father, we thank you that you have given us such an opportunity, Lord, to hear from you. Father, we pray that these words spoken would be your words, that your spirit, Lord, would till the ground of our hearts, not only to receive these words, but to receive them and accept them and to go and bear fruit in accordance with them. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Psalm 95 begins with what is both an invitation and an exhortation. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. O come. This is an invitation given An invitation to join together, to come together. A call to come collectively into the presence of God and to worship. And verse 7 indicates for us that this invitation, this call, is being specifically addressed to the people of God. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. So right away, we begin to get a sense of what a call to worship is and how it's meant to function in the context of a worship service. A call to worship is an invitation, an invitation that's addressed to, proclaimed to the people of God. But it's also something that the people of God proclaim together. It's something that the people of God do together, which exhorts them to worship. And it's a worship that is then expressed in song. Songs of thanksgiving and praise. A call to worship is an invitation and an exhortation. I want you to see here importantly, as we look at the language of Psalm 95, that this this invitation and this exhortation is set in a communal atmosphere. The action of the call to worship is a communal action. I mean, look look here at the right right at verse 1. Let us, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise. Let us come in to the presence of God. So not only is the call to worship in this psalm being addressed to the whole of God's people, but it's also an opportunity for the people of God as they recite and proclaim this psalm to actually call and to exhort and to encourage one another to come into the presence of God and to come before God in worship. Now, we, we, need, to, we need to sit with that for a minute because I think what, one of the things that is that is currently facing the church is a, is a sense of individualism in which we, we kind of come into church to, to get ours, to be filled, and then to leave. So much of our worship, and, and, and listen, this is the natural human tendency, is to consider that what we do here is for me. I mean, you can see this, this is evident in the way that churches are even structured today. There's the whole theology of architecture, which I won't go into today. But there is, there is purpose and design, even in the way that churches are built. And if you look at the way that churches are being constructed today, we've gotten rid of pews for individual seats. Communion, in many respects, is not something that you kind of partake together. It's, it's self-serve. You go up and get it yourself and take it when you're ready. Song, singing, music is only for the professionals. 
We've become so segregated and separated, even within our own church families. I mean, in, in many cases, some of you all will resonate with this experience. Many cases, when you, if you walk into a random church, you're first met by greeters and welcomers, and those are probably the, the only faces that you're going to get to see before you walk into a dark room that's dominated by the presence of a stage. And maybe the only communally oriented thing you're going to do is that awkward greeting time where no one really wants to move or shake hands, but we kind of half-heartedly crane our necks behind us to say good morning over the blaring music of the next worship song that it's coming on that no doubt in the midst of you're going to be invited to come and to worship and to sing, but you're probably going to fall quiet by verse 1 anyways because you can't hear yourself sing and they sing it better than you do anyways. Listen, we're not here to generalize and to criticize. I started this out by saying the tendency of all of us is to make worship about us. But my goodness, how far have we strayed from the biblical conception of a church in which, which is an organic community where not only is our fellowship warm and genuine, but our worship is shared. It's communal. Where we are truly a community that knows one another, that bears each other's burdens because we're aware of each other's burdens. A community that calls, verbally, vocally calls and exhorts and invites one another to come into the presence of God for worship. A community and a place in which we can actually hear each other sing where we're encouraged by the fact that even when our hearts are burdened with sin, when we're weary with grief, we can look across the pew and see somebody else who's burdened with sin and weary with grief and yet lifting up a song of praise to God with everything that they have left. That is meant to encourage us to do the same so that we might sing together praise to the Lord the Almighty. How oft in grief hath not He brought thee relief. Praise to the Lord. Oh, let all that is in me adore Him. Everything that has life and breath, come now with praises before Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly for air we adore Him. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear each other sing. I need to hear you sing. I have the great privilege of standing up here in front so that voices are projected at me. We need to see and, and hear each other calling one another to come before the Lord And come into his presence with worship. I I don't want you to underestimate. If anything, I want you to, to overestimate the value of participating. Participating in worship with fellow believers. We, we, we don't come into this house as, as individuals only. We come as the collective people of God. Being part of the covenant community. The communion of saints. In the words of Psalm 95, the sheep of God's own hand. The call to worship for the Israelites as they would sing Psalm 95 together. And the call to worship for us, it's meant to be a communal event in which we invite and exhort one another to come and worship God, our Maker. We should also remember here, and I've said this before, that our worship is intimately connected with our witness. Our worship is intimately connected with our witness. Not only is the call to worship an invitation and an exhortation that we share with one another as the people of God, but it is also what we might call an invitation and an exhortation to the nations. See, just as we are calling and encouraging one another to come and behold the glory of God, we're also calling out and encouraging those who are outside the fold of God's covenant people to come and behold God, to come and to see His goodness to come and to hear His Word. 
to come and receive the loving kindness of God, who is as much their maker as he is ours. John and I have been been praying for quite some time, and many of you all have joined us in praying that the Lord will bring visitors into our midst. We've got to keep praying that. We need to be be reaching out into our community. And I hope that, that as we do that, and as visitors come into our midst, I hope that they will hear and see our calls to worship that we sing every week as invitations and exhortations that are extended to them who are now outside the covenant fold to come through Christ the Son into the covenant community of God. And so our calls to worship, they're evangelistic. Did you ever think that when you're singing the call to worship in, the, in our morning service? Did you ever think that what you're doing is actually proclaiming an invitation, an exhortation to the nations? It's a great privilege that we get to express those invitations and exhortations through song, through singing. And why singing? Why is our worship expressed in song? Well, one is because God's word commands and commends us to. Paul says in Ephesians 5.19 that we are to address one another. Note again the emphasis on community. Paul says that we are to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Isn't that interesting? That we teach and admonish one another through song. We teach and admonish one another through song. So one reason why we sing, one reason why we have songs, is because God's word commands us and commends us to do so. But we also sing because singing, as the Bible portrays it, is the proper response to beholding the majesty of God. When you see God, the highest expression of praise that comes out of these vocal cords is song. Now, some of us may think, well, mine doesn't sound much like a song when it comes out. Well, It says what? Make a joyful noise. It is not so much the manner in which you sing it, but it is the heart from which it comes. Make a joyful noise. We sing because singing is one of the highest expressions of of our praise and our love for God. Now, again, I mentioned that I wanted to answer the question for you. Why, Why do we sing the Psalms? Why do we sing the Psalms specifically? Well, the Psalms are, let me put it this way, the Psalms are essentially God's hymn book for God's people. You've probably heard that before. The Psalms themselves are written and they're designed to be sung and recited or chanted in the context of worship and accompanied by musical instrumentation. And again, some of you may have heard this before, but you can look at the various uh, titles or subtitles of the Psalms, and you can, you'll see a smaller text there under the titles of the Psalms. And that smaller text contains what we've come to understand as liturgical instructions. Under Psalm 88, for example, you can look, if you want to just flip over a couple pages, you can look over and see that it reads a psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Machalath Leonoth, a masculine of Heman, the Ezraite. Now, some of the, the, you know, the complete meaning of these liturgical terms is, is uh, somewhat unknown to us, but it is clear that, that these were meant to inform things like style, what kind of song, uh, tempo, or tune. Most likely the phrase there, according to the Machalath Leonoth, is according to a specific tune, just like we have in our hymn books today. Again, 
I just say that to say that the point is that the Psalms were literally designed, they were written by, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be used in the context of communal worship and in which singing and recitation of the text is accompanied by music. So we sing the Psalms because that's what they were made for. But the other rationale behind singing the Psalms is simply, but profoundly, that we sing them because they're God's very own words. You've heard me say this many times. I'll probably say it a lot more, so forgive me. But what better way to praise God than to use his own words? You know, we should want to, in our worship, in every song that we sing, in the prayers that we give, we should want to present an accurate conception of who God is. Consider our witness. If our worship is itself a witness to the nations, then it it matters what we're singing. It matters what we're praying. It matters the content of our songs mattered. One of my other professors, uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who taught me theology of worship, he pressed home this important point, which was that there are specific consequences to the content of what we sing. You see, the content or theology, the theological content of our songs matter because our, our, our ultimate theological worldviews are in many ways shaped by what we sing. So the way that we look at the world, the way that we consider the circumstances of our lives, that can actually very much be shaped and affected by what we sing. Back in what um, Sarah and I have called my BC days, that is my before Christ days, I would listen to all kinds of um, uh, moody music, we'll put it that way. I definitely made some poor choices in terms of the musical theology that I was imbibing at that time. But one thing I began to notice as the Lord got a hold of my heart and started moving me away from some of those secular influences was I I noticed how much that music was affecting my attitudes and perspectives and about the way that I looked at the world. I have very vivid memories of times where I kind of literally woke up to the fact that some of the music that I was listening to was directly and negatively contributing to my attitude and perspective and mood. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we need to do away with our rock albums. I'm not saying, I'm not telling you to go out and burn your Beatles records. Please don't. Uh, You can give them to me. I'm simply asking you to consider this fact that what we sing The content of our songs, it matters. It affects us. And and I want to then turn and ask, how much more then in the context of worship ought we to care about the content and the substance of our songs? And to that end, again, I would say to you, what more accurate words, what more life-giving words, what more theologically rich words can we get at than God's own divine self-revelation in His Word, His inerrant inspired, infallible word. If we want to have songs that accurately depict the acts and the character of God, there's no better way to do that than to sing the very words of Scripture. I'm really grateful for hymn writers, many of whom we use in the context of our worship. I want to name a couple of them here for you in case you're interested in going out and searching them for them. Uh, the Get- you have the Gettys, you have Stuart Townend, you have Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, you have Fernando Ortega, Matt Merker, Shane and Shane, Indelible Grace, City of Light, Bob Coughlin and Sovereign Grace. There is a huge amount of music out there now that has turned to decidedly focus on, on accurately representing the words of Scripture in the songs that we sing. They have 
labored intensely to fill their songs with the words of Scripture. I'm, I'm really grateful for that resource. I'm also grateful for the resource of our hymn book, which, in, you know, the reason that many of these hymns have been preserved and why we're still singing them, some of them were written in the 4th century. The reason why we're still singing them, I think, is because they're so filled with the words of Scripture, which will never pass away. I think oppositely now, I think all of us can recognize that what often passes as Christian music these days bears hardly any resemblance to the God of the Bible. And I say that not so much to criticize as to warn that we need to be aware that our conceptions of God, the way that we think about God, the way that we think about God, how He works, that these perspectives are being shaped by the songs that we listen to and sing. I'm convinced that one of the greatest threats that, that's facing us, particularly as Christians in this nation, is biblical illiteracy. It is terrifying. It is terrifying to me how many people profess to be Christians and yet do not know their Bibles. And the results, one of the consequences of the fact that we do not know our Bibles, we do not know the content of God's divine self-revelation, one of the logical consequences of that is that we end up producing things like songs that don't bear any resemblance to the God of this word. So many of them portray Christ not as the conquering king of Judah, not as the risen lamb, not as the sum and the substance of the scriptures, but as this kind of self-help guru who wants to give you the wonderful life you deserve and and just give you just a morsel of encouragement so that you can get through the day when we have a wealth of living bread to take from The natural trajectory of not knowing Scripture is to do what we've always done, which is to worship the creature rather than the creator. And so what are are the guard posts that keep us from going off into self-centered, selfish, man-centered worship? The words of Scripture, God's divine self-revelation. So, in sum, why do we sing the Psalms? Why Why have I said all this to you? Because one, God has given them to us for this very purpose, That is to be used in the context of worship, but two, because the Psalms in many ways best express the content of what our worship is to be centered on. And so we begin our service centered, placing our full attention upon God himself. Our text today, Psalm 95, is a perfect perfect example of this, where we are just reveling in the glory and majesty of God. Did you notice the way that Psalm 95 portrays God? It describes him, it addresses him as the rock of our salvation. Verse 3 proclaims God is a great God, the great meaning here, vast and exalted, and a great king above every other God, small g there. Verses 4 through 5 describe God as creator, maker of heaven and earth, the one who formed the mountains and the seas, the one who holds the depths of the earth in his hand. Did you notice that hand is singular? Just pause on that for a moment. It doesn't take God two hands to hold the depths of the earth. He holds it in one hand. You see here that implicit in Psalm 95 is this wonderful posture of humility in which the psalmist is recognizing God is God, glorious and majestic, and I am not. The psalmist takes a position of humility which he then expresses in songs of praise. It is a humility that recognizes and exalts the greatness and the majesty of God because He is due that worship. 
worship is just ascribing to God the glory which is already due Him. Our worship is just the proper response to encountering God Almighty. And this again speaks to the function of of the call to worship in our service. This call to worship is meant to, it's designed to, reorient our minds, our hearts and minds, by positioning us towards the glory of God. It's purposeful in reminding us that the whole reason that we're here is to worship God, is to come and to behold Him, because God is inherently worthy of the worship which we are giving. And so the call to worship from the very start of the service places our full attention on God, positions us in humility with our faces toward the Lord Almighty. What a wonderful privilege it is to worship our God, the rock of our salvation, the King above all kings. And I use privilege there specifically. It is a privilege which is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. The privilege of you being in worship here today, this very morning, is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. You see, up to this point, I've been mainly uh, teaching on the purpose and function of the call to worship in, in terms of how some, something that we do, something that we do in the context of worship together as the people of God, but we're missing a critical piece of the puzzle here. You see, up to this point, we have not answered the question that how is it that sinful people like you and I and the psalmist can enter into the presence of God Almighty? The Psalm Psalm 95 is an invitation and an exhortation to enter into the presence of God, but what we've not answered is how is it that sinful people can come into the presence of God? How is it that we can take joy? How can we take joy in a God who is perfect in power and in holiness without cowering in fear before Him? How is it that idolaters and liars and adulterers and black-hearted sinners like you and like me can rightly express true worship in spirit and in truth before the Lord in praise and thanksgiving? The answer is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For I once was lost, was blind, but now I see. Indeed, twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and that same grace my fears relieved. Do you realize that every time we get up to sing a call to worship, that you would not be singing that call to worship were it not for the gracious act of God to intervene in your life, to call you out of the domain of darkness and into His marvelous light. Do you realize that had God not acted, neither you nor I would be in here worshiping. If God did not take the initiative out of His free grace and goodness and loving kindness to pluck us as a brand of iron pulled from the fire, we would still be lying in the valley of dry bones. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins as we confess this morning. We would still be enraptured with the carnal pleasures of this world, captivated by the prince of the power of the air. Children, but not children under grace, children under wrath. Had God not intervened. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. How great the love of God in Christ Jesus, who for the joy set before Him 
endured the pain and suffering of the cross so that we who are most undeserving would be free from the dominion of sin and death, having received the righteousness of Christ, which might as well be those righteous, that righteousness being placed on you as the kingly robes of Christ so that when we enter into the presence of God Almighty, He beholds us there no longer as the wretch that was, but the Son who is holy and perfect and loved by the Father. You right now as a saint of God are wearing the righteous robes of Christ which you did not deserve to wear. By the righteousness of Christ, we who are once incapable of being in the presence of a holy God without being consumed because of our many sins, now in Christ we are no longer under condemnation. No condemnation longer, I dread. But now in the freedom of the Spirit, we can come into into the courts of God with thanksgiving. We can sit at the great King's table with joy. We can rejoice in the inheritance that we have received, which is life everlasting in the presence of God who has made us for Himself. You see, here's the marvelous reality of what a call to worship really is. It's not just an interesting element of our worship service. We might be the only people in Albany that sing the Psalms. I hope not, but we might be. That's not why we do it. It's not just an invitation, an exhortation that we share with one another and that we share with the nations. It is the very proclamation of the gospel because before you could ever sing a call to worship, you had to be called into worship. The witness of Scripture is clear, brothers and sisters. Salvation is of God. The flesh is of no help at all. If salvation were up to us, we would still be dead in our trespasses, serving ourselves, helpless and hopeless without Christ in the world. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, can we just go ahead and get rid of the phrase... I found Jesus. They found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. And praise God that He did. The work of salvation is holy and completely an act of God in which God Himself from all eternity eternity issued a call upon your lives that at His perfect, good and perfect timing, you, when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit so moved in you to make you willing and able, as we confess this morning, to freely open your hand and to receive by faith the righteousness of Christ and have those robes placed on your back. This is the, listen, y'all, this is the very grounds and foundation of why we sing. The grounds of our worship rests on the solid rock of our salvation, which is Christ. I I just want you to see this. The whole psalm, all of Psalm 95, turns on this point. Christ is the hinge point. Because do you realize that without Christ, it's impossible for us to praise God. It's impossible for us to call God the rock of our salvation. Because apart from Christ, there is no salvation. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. John 14.6 Without Christ, it's impossible to enter into the presence of God. Sinful man cannot be in the presence of holy God without a mediator. Who is our mediator? 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Christ is our access into the presence of God. Without Christ, it's impossible for us to be called the people of God's pasture and the sheep of His hand. Because only in Christ, who is the good shepherd, 
is the one rescued from among the 99. Only in Christ are the sheep made able to hear the voice of God and be drawn into the fold. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus in John 10, 27. I know them. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Without Christ, it's impossible for us to take joy in God and to delight in God because apart from Christ, we remain under the just judgment for our sins. Brothers and sisters, there's no joy in wrath. Joy, taking joy in God, comes only as the result of the forgiveness of our sins. What the psalmist of Psalm 95 was looking forward to, we now look back on, which is the life of and death and resurrection of Christ, who says of himself, do you remember Christ's words? I am the fulfillment, I am the sum and the substance of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Christ says it all points to me. Psalm 95 points to me. Christ is the substance of Psalm 95. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when we get together and we sing Psalm 95 to the tune of all hail the power of Jesus' name, I want you to take some time to look around. I want you to see your brothers and your sisters verbally proclaiming the glory of God. I want you to remember that our calls to worship are exhortations. They're invitations both to each other and also to the nations. But I also want you in the midst of of singing that call to worship, to remember that we love because He first loved us. We sing because He first saved us. From the very start of our service, I want you to behold Christ. I want Christ to be in your eyes from the first verse of that call to worship. I want you to remember the part in which He purchased for you. Remember the unmerited favor bestowed upon you so that you could come and sing and worship. I want you to consider what a great privilege it is to be in the communion of saints, to be named among the sheep of God's very own fold. Now, as we come to a close here, I would be remiss and I would leave you all with an incomplete sermon if I were not to deal with the rest of Psalm 95. There's one final aspect of a call to worship that you need to hear and to recognize Today and one that should always accompany our proclamations of the gospel. Uh, you probably noticed in verse 8, that well, it actually starts in, in, at the end of verse 7, that the tone of the psalm itself begins to shift. This is still an invitation and an exhortation in one sense, right? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. There is an invitation and an exhortation there, but in another sense, it is very much a warning. The mention here of the names Meribah and Massah in verse 8 is reference to two events in Israel's history. One occurs in Exodus chapter 17, immediately following Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. The other comes in Numbers 20 during Israel's time in the wilderness. In both of these occasions, the people of God cry out in complaint against God and Moses because they are thirsty and believe that they will die of their thirst. The people accuse Moses and ultimately accuse God of bringing them out of Egypt just to kill him in the desert. What the people are doing is expressing unbelief. 
They are essentially calling into question the faithfulness and the sovereignty and the trustworthiness of God. They are questioning God's very character. The word Meribah means quarreling. And the word Massa means testing. So what they're doing is by complaining before God, they are quarreling with him and they are also testing him, which you see there represented in verse 9. The point is that in both events, the people of Israel display a hardness of heart, which is unbelief. And God expresses that as being loathsome to him. You see that in verse 10? For 40 years, I loathed that generation. The consequence of hardness of heart, the consequence of unbelief is judgment. The phrase that comes at the very end of Psalm 95 is, They shall not enter my rest. We cannot skip over that. They shall not enter my rest. This phrase is a direct result of the unbelief of the people. And the author of Hebrews makes this clear when he declares that we who believe, that is we who believe in Christ, we are the ones who enter into the promised rest of God. So that means that those who by their hardness of heart and unbelief reject Christ, they do not enter the rest of God, but remain under wrath and judgment. What I want you to see here is that Brothers and sisters, this proclamation of the gospel, which is this call to worship in Psalm 95, it is, yes, both an invitation and an exhortation to freedom and to rest in Christ, but it is also very much a warning of judgment. You see, Christ, when he came and preached the coming of the kingdom of God, he preached both. The call to repent and believe for the kingdom of God at hand is both an invitation to come and to believe in Christ and it is a promise of judgment as well. Now, that should lead us to even more humility. But it also should constrain us to great prayer and pleading for those who are at this moment outside the covenant community of God. And this is how I want to end our time together here today. Because the point of this sermon is to not make us feel comfortable. It is to remind us that we were brought here into the fold of God by grace. And that grace is extended through Christ to the nations. And we know, we have many people we know who are outside that fold and we need to be praying that that same grace that drew us in would also draw them in. I really can't say it any better than Isaac Watts once did. We are getting ready to sing this great hymn. And I just want you to reflect on these words as we conclude this sermon and service today. How sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the wedding feast. Each of us cries with thankful tongue. Lord. Why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was thus same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. And then turns to this great prayer. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come and send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full. That all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Brothers and sisters, that is a call to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great word. 
We thank you, Father, that it is a proclamation of the truth of your gospel, that Christ is the sum and the substance of your divine self-revelation. Father, we ask by your mercy and your grace that you would lead us, Lord, not only to consider in humility that you saved us in spite of our sin while we were yet sinners, but, Lord, that that would then motivate us to pray for those sheep you have yet to bring into your fold. Lead us, Lord, by your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.